0: Hello friends, this is Matt. wanted to give you a little heads up about the episode today. We were dealing with some hardware issues. We had an iPad that was giving us some troubles. We think we've edited out most of the struggles from that, but you may notice a couple of awkward edits, maybe some strange background noise. Try to get all that out of there, but with this sort of thing, that's just not always possible. So I... Uh, to my ears, I can hear some faults in the, in the episode. Maybe it'll be sound great to you. Uh, I hope it doesn't do anything to hinder your enjoyment of the episode, and I hope that you will still be able to glean some good from it. So uh, without further ado, let's get into
1: the episode. We don't have to end up, or another way to say it, we don't get to end up the way we started Each of us in our Christian walk get to change our course. Hello, this is the Adventure
0: Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today is Eric. Hey there. Back from Florida. And we've got Karen. Frozen in Colorado. (laughs) And we've got Tracy. Morning. Good morning. Tracy's on his own little jaunt today, but not quite so far away. <laughs> just, just up in the, up in the hills for a little bit in Estes Park, Colorado. And folks haven't ever been there. It's kind of a nice little place to go.
2: Don't say it out loud. See. Our thousands of fans yeah. would no, go I mean, out. Never I mean,
0: Estes Park is absolutely horrible. Don't come. Yeah, and I'm just in my office as usual. No, 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 uh, no, no special trips for me right now. I do have some coming up. I'll be going to uh, just a super quick trip up to or out to uh, Arizona next week. We're flying out on Monday or Sunday, coming home Monday, just to go see the school that my son is going to go to. Ooh, nice. Yeah. And then the following week is uh, is Easter weekend, and we're going to be headed to Iowa to spend time with my wife's family. So that'll be kind of nice, too. So a couple short little trips in my near future. But, um, yeah, I got one, yeah. too. And uh, Yeah, so as things are opening up more and it's becoming easier to do, it uh, gives us some opportunities to get out and feel a little less self-conscious about doing it, and it's nice. It's nice. Speaking of Easter coming up, I've got my my bag of uh, mini-Robin's eggs here. It's like my favorite Easter candy. I uh, I haven't opened them yet, though, because I don't want to sit here eating them while we're, while we're recording, because you'll just hear this crunching and these, these horrible sounds of of eating from my end of things, if I was to open that bag now, because those things are, they're uh, they're extremely addictive to me. Little uh, little malted milk balls with this candy <laughs> shell on them, and I don't know yeah. why I like them so much, man. But boy, I start in on those, and I can't, I just can't stop eating them. I have yeah. I have these little times during the year that I have certain candies that that uh, I have to eat. It's like in the fall, <laughs> I have to eat candy corn. I know. I know it, Oh it just drives people nuts that I like candy corn it, no, oh, I like it. Like... our discussion this week we starts in second Samuel chapter 16 now last week we had been talking about all the struggles that David had sort of stemming from his sin with Bathsheba uh, adultery and murder and all kinds of things going on and um, it, it culminated in a conflict between two of his sons uh, one one rapes his half-sister, the other one murders him for doing that and it was just a big ugly family battle and sort of things just kind of, seems like they sort of started to snowball after David's time with Bathsheba and you know, it kind of occurred to me that these were probably things that were building up even before his time with Bathsheba and this was just a, a result of David's inability to control himself with women it seemed because neither one of those boys was Bathsheba's son So the story continues today with now David is on the run from his son Absalom as his son Absalom has tried to take over the throne. Not so much tried because, I mean, he just kind of moved in and David just kind of moved out. It was interesting that David didn't really put up a fight, but it just seems like he's completely disinterested in trying to fight with anybody, especially from his own family. He just does not want to try to take on. Uh, Absalom in this way. And so he he has left Jerusalem and Absalom moved in. So our story now this week, it starts with, uh, as David is on the run, Mephibosheth's servant, Ziba, comes to join the party. And he's bringing supplies to support David. And David is asking him, you know, where's Mephibosheth? Because this is the guy who's supposed to be in charge of taking care of Mephibosheth. He's Mephibosheth, I, I can't believe I keep saying that word so well, has uh, <laughs> he's got some bad feet. I don't know exactly, you know, the Bible says he's lame in his feet, so I don't know exactly what that means other than, he, I think, what he was dropped as a baby, and so something is going on there. But uh, he's very much unable to care for himself, it seems. And Mephibosheth has left him behind. And David's like, why? Why have you left him behind? And Mephibosheth says basically no, this is that Zeba
1: Zeba is saying this to David yes in, thank you yes
0: Zeba Zeba is saying that Mephibosheth chose to stay behind and if i read it right it's because he thinks that Israel will somehow come back to him or will come back to the
1: house of Saul yeah now <clears throat> since this is within our reading and it's a bit of a spoiler alert this is a thing that i had forgotten um because I remember that David shows kindness because Mephibosheth, if, if our listeners don't remember, is Jonathan's son. And David had made a promise to his best friend, Jonathan, who was Saul's son, that he would take care of his any of his relatives. And against the tradition of killing all of the other heirs to the throne, David does, in fact, take care of Mephibosheth. Feeds him at his table and says, Ziba, who was Saul's servant. Now your job is to take care of Mephibosheth. Well, now all of a sudden it looks like Mephibosheth is, is, is staying behind in hopes of regaining the kingdom, which seems a little odd and misplaced since David's son has just formed a coup. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how Mephibosheth thinks that he's getting it. Now, this is what Ziba says. And in chapter 19, because we read through uh, 20, Mephibosheth gets called on this when David returns to the city. You remember that? It's in um, chapter 19, verse 25. Right. Mephibosheth mm-hmm. denies this. He says, no, Ziba is lying about all this. I, that's not what I did. And David's basically like, "I'm okay, I'm done talking about this. Because what had happened is all of Saul's material had been, lands had been given to Mephibosheth, and Ziba was to take care of it for Mephibosheth, for his benefit. Well, at this point, I believe David gives everything to Ziba. And then in chapter 19, 25, David says, no, okay, I changed my mind again. Zeba gets half, Mephibosheth gets half, we're done. Yeah. It's
0: weird. It but, is weird. See, isn't it, it the, that
1: kind? isn't that kind of that the arc, though, because you... You know, you're looking
0: at it in the whole story, and you think, you know, wouldn't Mephibosheth chef – oh, there I go. Matt couldn't do it a couple <laughs> weeks ago, and I can't get it out. But wouldn't you think that he would be just grateful for the way that David set him up and have that total allegiance to him
1: all the time? But then you, you hear this, so. and it's like, okay, what's going on here? And we're not told. And, and that's the thing. We don't – I never – did you figure out, Tracy? Do you figure who was telling the truth here? Zeba, Mephibosheth? No. It doesn't, no. and and
0: two, even looking ahead, it's saying this and that, and saying so and so. It's like it's the, we're missing some of the the finer int- intricacies of the story. So it's yeah. like, okay, I, I'm just sitting there wondering. But my thing would be that I'm I'm sitting here, you know, lame in a city hiding out, and David brings me to his house let's me eat his food restores all my land restores my money i'm living in a place where people are taking care of me and taking care of my land and i'm just counting my money but i'm not going to be grateful i'm still thinking i could inherit the
1: you know all of israel again and be the king i just don't see it yeah i there is th- that's one of the things about this whole reading 16 to 20 that was really disturbing to me is just kind of this I mean, it's got more plot twists than a than a movie. You know, it's just I, I keep thinking of um, was it Mission Impossible, the old show where it's like, but I'm not really the person you think I am, and they peel off their plastic face, and it's the exactly. other guy, and you're like, what? Hmm. It's I see this 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 turning of one person to turn it. I was your enemy just five minutes ago, but now I'm your best friend. I'm like, wait, what? It's this whole reading is just full of this and it's very confusing because it kind of falls upon the whole
0: self-preservation kind of thing where you can kind of relate. Okay. Maybe he's just trying to save his life at this point, you know, because we've already established that David, let's just keep it simple. He's a killing machine. And it's like you cross him. There's a good chance that you're going to die. You know? So maybe that's, you know, part of the twist in there that it's some
1: self-preservation. I don't know.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of twists and turns and political intrigue in this. And if somebody was able to put it together as a story for a TV show or a movie, it would be kind of a fascinating show because there's just so much happening here. Yes, I'd watch it.
2: (laughs) So the thing I noticed, and it's similar to what you guys are saying, but it was kind of like this. You know how when somebody texts with lots of exclamation points, you end up thinking that maybe they're having trouble catching their breath. Like the whole thing just feels like this, like, Oh, we're leaping from one thing to another. And we're all so excited that that's the way this read. It read like, like a gossip. These chapters read like a gossip sheet, you know? Oh, yeah. And at, at a glance, it, it was almost, it, I know that the Bible doesn't provide detailed stories. So I'm like, I'm totally with you guys that like, we're, we're not getting the whole thing. But at a glance, it was like, David goes here and this person says this. And David believes him and takes action as if he just heard the truth. And then David goes here and, and here's something else. And he totally believes that. And so he takes action. The whole thing, I, I came out with the impression, like how, how naive was David? Like, didn't he stop to check any of this stuff out? Like he's the king. Shouldn't he be aware that subterfuge happens?
1: Some of that occurred to me, too, Karen. It's kind of like, in reading this, it's like, wait a minute. Like, how insulated was David at this point where he mm-hmm. missed basically all of this going on? Yeah. Like how You how, know, how I don't know it
0: if it was insulated or if it was withdrawn.
1: Because yeah, that's okay. what I was thinking. When it comes to his sons, for sure. He was... He was willing, he was willfully passive and negligent. Yep. And I don't mean passive in a good way. He was. No. And pacifism is, I guess, in, in this context, is not always a good thing because David's passivity and unwillingness to stand up caused a lot of this. Um, it's, Wow. Well, speaking mm-hmm. of flip-flops, the very next thing that happens is we have, uh, in Second Samuel 16, we have the story of Shimei? Shimei?
0: Shimei. Shimei.
1: Shimei.
0: I, that's the way I say it. There you go. We're so sh- that probably
1: means it right. It's right, right? <laughs> so Shimei starts cursing David as David's leaving, because Shimei is a relative of Saul. And he's he's unloading all this, used basically just saying you suck, you're a bad person, you're horrible as a king and as a person, and throwing rocks at him. And i got to wonder, man, that guy is either super, super stupid, or he does not actually know what's going on, because David's surrounded by his mighty men. I mean, they wouldn't even have to break stride to kill him. I mean, they they wouldn't even break a sweat. And he's, he's being pretty bold. You yeah. know, the thing is, Shimei, I think he knows that, because he calls David a murderer.
0: He knows that he's a, an you know, an excellent, I guess, war machine if you want to call it that. But he he knows what he's up against. But I, I'm wondering if David's just sitting there, kind of looking at this poor guy, going, "Okay, you know, let him do his thing." At this point, it's just rocks, guys. Yeah. Because well, he, Shimei's whole tack here is misguided, though, too, because it's not David's fault that that uh, Saul isn't king anymore. It wasn't David who killed Saul. Right. It was, I mean, in one hand, it was the Philistines, but ultimately it was Saul himself. You know, it, it, David never went after Saul. And so this right.
1: Shimei is just completely off base with this. Yeah, there's another flip that's going to happen. And it, I find it interesting that David says in verse 12, basically, leave it to God. He's like, mm-hmm. you know what? Maybe God set him up to this. We'll let God handle this.
0: Well, I yeah. think he does a really good job here of not succumbing to this, because if he was if he was to let his guys kill him, He'd just be proving the guy's point because the guy is trying to say that you're, you know, you have the throne because you're bloodthirsty and you're a, you're just a, you're just a warmonger and, and nothing could be further from the truth, at least in the case of Saul, which is Shimei's argument. And uh, David's just not going to, he's just not going to take part in that and, and be violent to Shimei at all. Well, in, let's see, starting in round verse 16, the next section here. We have this guy Hushai, who comes to Absalom. Oh, Hushai was uh, Hushai was um, a spy, basically left behind for David. We talked about him mm, a couple weeks ago, I think. He had wanted to stay with David. David said, "You know, it might be better if you just stayed back as an advisor to Absalom, and then you could kind of let me know what's going on." And Hushai had had done this, and he comes to he comes to Absalom in kind of the guise of offering him support. Absalom goes to someone else, Ahithophel, for some advice. Now, now Ahithophel had been David's counselor, if we look back to chapter 15. And Ahithophel gives some really gross advice, just disgusting advice, to, to Absalom. And his advice is basically, go have sex with your dad's concubines. David had left behind 10 concubines to
1: take care of the house while they were gone. So interesting that that the advice that Ahithophel gives is part of the curse that Nathan talks to David about. The thing Mm -hmm. that you did was done in secret. The thing that will come back on you will be done in broad daylight, which is exactly what Ahithophel suggests. You're going to pitch a tent on the palace roof. We're going to walk all ten women in there. Then you go in there, and everybody's going to know what happened. And this is a sign of your taking power. And I think this was probably more for Ahithophel's advantage than it was for Absalom's. Because he made Absalom kind of tip a point of no return. Because once Absalom had done this, there was no going back. Yeah, Correct is. me if I'm
0: wrong. Haven't we seen this with with uh, the concubines before, with somebody else from one of our readings before.
1: <sighs> yes, and I can't think of which one it was. And I
0: can't think of the name either. But that was a, that's a huge thing.
1: It's that a political then, that we thing see. here.
0: It's yes, a that thing. We, that's we, a definite line in the sand. That when you use this method, there's no going back.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a political thing that says now since I have. Um, quote had these women, then I have authority and power, and I have taken what used to belong to this other person. It was it was definitely it's it's unfortunate and it's demeaning and degrading and dehumanizing and all these other things. But above all, this was a political move, not a sexual move, for the for the man. For the women, I'm sure it was just a not a wonderful thing. This was, this was a political move that Ahithophel makes or suggests to um, Absalom.
2: To me, this whole, like, well, sleep with his concubines, you know, and so they set up a tent and do it in the sight of everyone. I mean, to me, that is from the man's point of view. This is a way to, say, pee on the corners of your territory. You know what I mean? Like, Go this ahead. is a way of proving that you own this now. And that's a very traditional way that men like to do that over the centuries. And I have always found it odd. It plays out in this story and it still plays out in other ways today where the man can, can do this with as many women and there's somehow no effect on him, but the, the same, the very same women are then they have to live in isolation for the rest of their lives.
1: Yeah, I think that's a cultural thing. I don't think that's God's view of things. No. And it's very much a Middle Eastern type thing. Um, And it may be in other cultures as well. But I've heard of stories where a woman gets assaulted and then the honor killing, they kill her. Right. She was a victim already once. Why? Twice. Now, I mean, obviously, women in these cases were more property than than relationships anyways. Mm -hmm. Because these 10 women who were left behind, they're not even named. None of these were actually David's wives. And so... So it, it's a weird thing. So.
0: Yeah. And I was noticing something, too, in the reading here where I think we see something that it, it's a version of something we see in politics today where nobody really ever makes an effort to try to to bring in people from the other side. It's always more of a let's let's strengthen the base we have by showing utter contempt for the other side. Where here what what Absalom has done is he's he's shown that he just he has he has no respect, no regard for uh for David at all by doing this, and ultimately, what it does is it strengthens his base but pushes his opponents further away so it's not it, it, it seems similar to me like today's politics today's um when you, when you have a, a a campaign a political campaign. When was the last time you heard a political campaign where somebody tried to make themselves sound good, like you should vote for me because I'm good? Instead, it's you should vote for me because that person is the most worthless, horrible person on the planet. Right. You know, it's so rare that you hear anybody in politics ever trying to build themselves up. It's always tear the other guy down. And it's gotten to the point, it seems to me, where uh, the political divide—it's all everybody just keeps getting pushed more and more away. Nobody tries to pull pull together. It's let's just push the other people away as hard as we can.
2: You know, we see that, and and you're right, Matt. Like even when a even when a modern politician stands up and says, "You should vote for me because." His reasons usually have to do with fighting against the nasty, whatever, fill-in-the-blank topic du jour that the other side will do if they get in. So it's all a matter of exclusion rather than inclusion. And for some reason, for some reason, and this goes to human nature, we see this in the chapters that we read today, like within the political realm and the power struggles within people, for some reason, this is okay. But think about... Think about like in interpersonal relationships, if people treated each other up close and personal, think how horrible that would be on a marriage. You know what I mean? Or a close friendship. Like that's, that's the quickest way. Anybody who's up close and personal knows that's the quickest way to destroy what is between two people. And, and it's not really any different between two power icons or entities but somehow people think that it is. And so they go about it completely different. It's very strange.
1: It is. It is. So we see something happening here that I made a note of as I was reading is Absalom is going into this and he feels he's right. And so do a lot of the other people. I mean, it's not like it's just Absalom going into this rebellion by himself. He's got a lot of people with him. He's got, counselors in his um, own cabinet who defect to Absalom, and it's just, it's what kind of spirit, and I think this is a thing that, it's interesting to, to look at and say, well, that was them. That was those people in the Bible. That's not us. His Absalom thought he was doing the right thing, or at least he, at some point, he portrayed that he was doing the right thing. And so did so did David's count, but what they're doing is they're doing murder, they're they're conspiring to murder the king of God's anointed people who God personally anointed, and yet they feel they're in the right. I mean it's pretty bold. you read this here and now it's 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 like, yeah, pretty much what what kind of spirit, where does that come from? that they feel like they're going to launch out and commit murder, but they feel like they're doing the right thing.
0: You know, I look at this, and I think I go along with the same point that Matt was making, is that's that's the almost the world of politics that we live in, that you're so willing to assassinate somebody else's character and not stand on your own merits, and you make such a huge divide that there is no coming back. And this one is, you know, on our scale today, we don't see it as like... You know to, to murder the person in you know just just by doing that or intentionally, but we assassinate their character. Where Absalom, he did this in in broad daylight with the concubines. He was making that riff. He was gathering all his people, and he was being fed this 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 advice. And it's by somebody else. And you know, I wonder too if if David maybe wasn't privy to the whole political thing and just was like you know what i'm not gonna get this this has kind of turned into a, a life of its own and that's why he was just in a way too super passive about it and was like you know what it's gonna play out and didn't do anything about it i know it doesn't give him a pass but you know it just looks like it just spiral, it's spiraling quickly out of control yeah it's it's uh yeah there's just there's so much to gain to learn from this on the in this reading and it almost seems like both sides are kind of the victims of their followers because absalom's getting bad advice when you get to david's side of things you got joab working in the background it seems i'm guessing joab is just working for his own purposes he likes having david in place uh because it works out well for him until david you know doesn't work well for him and then but then joab we'll get to that here in a little in a little while but there's just a it's just so much going on of people trying to hold on to their own uh their own positions and it none of it ends up good so eventually though uh, Ahithophel he asked permission from Absalom to go after David with 12,000 men and that's that's kind of flattering to David because I think did David left with a few hundred didn't he and uh when he left um Israel I think he just left with a few hundred. I imagine he gained some, as he always seemed to do. But he says he'll he'll kill David and bring all the followers back. And uh, he, he thinks this is going to be, bring peace to Israel. He says, when all return except the man whom you speak, all the people will be at peace.
1: And I think it, it goes to what we talked about. What I mentioned earlier is this, this distorted idea that our way of doing things is going to work. And we're doing the right thing. You know, I mean, come on. They are they are going to murder God's anointed. And they're all saying, yep, we're doing it. We're patriots. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, there you go. It's, it's right out there. I guess you just baptize whatever belief or action you want to have and say, I'm doing it for God, for patriotic purposes, et cetera, et cetera. It's like throughout history, virtually every time a country invades another one, this goes way back. We're here to liberate you. You know, I'm sure the Israelites didn't really want to be liberated by the Babylonians, but there they were. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they call it whatever they want. I don't want to miss, I think it's verse 14 of chapter 17, where this, the story of Hushai gives advice contrary to Ahithophel's. Uh, Ahithophel says, go after him right now while they're not organized, they're not together, they're still feeling really bad, they don't have a plan, just go get them right now. And they know, Hushai knows that if they did that, Absalom would be successful. Because David hasn't organized. They are, I mean, they're, they're tough guys, but they're not, they don't really have a plan. They haven't really had a time to talk yet. And Hushai comes and they ask Hushai, they say, well, what do you think? And Hushai says, no, and he flatters Absalom. No, what you need to do here is make a big show of it. Don't do basically a, 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 you know, a targeted military strike here. What you should do is make a big splash, make everybody know that you're the boss. And Absalom thinks, yeah, yeah, if I have everybody involved in this, then everybody's going to think I'm cool. But Ahithophel knew that that was going to lose because he knew that once David got organized that David was going to have time to collect his people. And David later, as we, as you read, every time you read about David's numbers, every time you read through the story, there's more. Mm-hmm. You start out with just a few. It's his household. Oh, and then there's like a couple hundred. And then there's a couple thousand. And then by the time they do battle the next day, David divides them into three groups. Each of them are thousands under each of the commanders. Yeah. And so David, Ahithophel knows that if David has the opportunity to do this, Absalom's troops, unorganized, it's not going to work. They're going to lose. But the key here isn't just military strategy. It is this, and I'm reading from verse 14. Uh, The council of Hushai the Archite is better than the council of Ahithophel. That's what Absalom says. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good council of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Now, we've talked about this many times, is God does not wish harm upon people, but he does, in fact, sometimes he does judgment himself, and usually when he does that, there's no doubt about where that's coming from. The earth opens up, or fire comes down from heaven, and nobody wonders, like, oh, where'd that come from? But in this case, it was the natural result of God tipping the scales in, in the direction of, of Hushai, which was going to lead to Absalom's defeat. And so this idea that when God wants something to happen, it can go that way. You know, I I see your point there too. And I think
0: that Hushai in the beginning, that was, you know, that's one once again, one of those kind of uh, plot twists in there that he was left there to kind of watch things occur. He has Absalom's ear and he also knows David. He's also campaigned with David been in battles with david so he knows exactly what's coming once that that line is crossed then that's exactly what has to happen and he knows he's gonna gain strength because what we've seen is that david was a beloved king people people rallied to him and it was only a matter of time before he got things organized and was like okay there's things i get i'm gonna need to do he also had the same counsel with joab we don't know exactly what Joab's saying at this point But it's like, okay, let's get it together and let's go defend what's ours. And that's what was coming. And that was David's role. And we've seen that in the past is that he was an enforcer. He was a king that was going to go out and what was his and expand his his country. And I think that's where it, it comes to. It's another one of those plot twists that, you know what, I think the Lord at that point like we were saying, just kind of withdrew the protection and let it play out. And that's, and I think David still continued to be um, close with God like he had done in the past. So Hushai gains the, the favor there of Absalom and his advice gets taken. And then that gives Hushai the opportunity then to warn David to escape. I suppose it bought him some time, but it also, uh, this, this had been set up by David and Hushai in the past, that he would be able to send uh, information through the priests. I know some of the priests went with David, but there must have been some that stayed behind in Jerusalem. And they were staying loyal to David. But he advises David then to cross over the Jordan and... Oh, I'm trying to remember how this all played out here exactly. The word passes, it gets, goes through a female servant to a couple of guys, Jonathan and Amihaz. Now, this isn't Saul's son, Jonathan. Clearly, it's another son because that Jonathan is dead at this point. But Jonathan and Amihaz, or um, yeah, Amihaz. And those two guys are seen by a boy who then tells Absalom. And it's kind of a fun little story here. They hide in a well, and this well gets covered up by a cloth and grain. It's like one of these old. These days, these are like one of the oldest trips, tricks in the book. Let's just hide the trap door with a rug and nobody will look, you know. But they they, they hide down in a well. It gets covered up by a cloth and some grain. And Absalom's servants can't find them. So they manage to escape to give David the message. A little uh, fun side story
1: there. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. All these chases and twists and turns. Yeah. And yeah. looking for who and who's the real person? And oh, this person oversaw that thing and or, you know, saw that thing. And it's like, wow, it's, it is, this is a legit chase. And I mean, it is life and death here. And it's, it's an unusual amount of detail that we get in this whole story.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and Ahithophel takes this really, really well. Not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His his idea isn't taken, and he responds by committing suicide. Of all things, it's like, wow, this guy is uh real stable, isn't he?
2: That was but, I mean, so strange to me.
0: I, yeah, it kind of took me off guard as I'm reading. I'm like, whoa, wow, really you you
1: you, you got your feelings hurt this bad? Oh no, That's- he's he's committed treason, and he knows there's he knows that Absalom might get forgiven. But there is no chance he's going to get forgiven. Ah,
0: well, okay. There's something, and that's exactly what I was looking at. That he knew that his days were numbered because yeah. he was going to be on the wrong side of it. Hmm. Well, that makes more sense to me now because at first it was, it was like, oh wow, well, that's <laughs> that's a little, uh, that's a little drastic. But um, yeah, there's there's that underlying uh, political story going on too where. Yeah, he's clearly been the treasonous one.
1: Yeah, he knows. He knows enough to know about David, and he knows enough about Absalom. He knows as soon as they say, yeah, let's do what Hushai said, he knows the rebellion's doomed. He knows Mm -hmm. it right then. And Mm -hmm. there's no going back for him because he was the architect of this. And again, it goes to, man, it goes to where Saul is, is that, Back when he was facing the Philistines and the devil shows up, the devil never says, you know what, repent. The devil just says, yeah, there's no going back, no chance, might as well just kill yourself. Mm, Yeah.
0: Well, David goes to Mahanaim, which on the map looked to me to be about 60 miles northeast of Jerusalem on the east side of the Jordan. And Absalom makes then Amasa, the captain of his army. And he's the son of a man named Jithra, who had been with Joab's cousin. So now we're getting some some other family ties going on here. So Amasa is the son of this man named Jithra. He'd been with Joab's cousins. And then there were talks, there's talk about Abigail, who's the daughter of Nahash. And then we have so- Shobi, who's the son of Nahash. And I'm guessing it to be the same Nahash and other men of the region. And they, they bring aid to David's men. So now it's really getting, I mean, even as I'm speaking it here, I'm, confusing myself of what's happening here but it's like all this family interchange this half of the family is supporting david this half of the family is working against david and and it's just it's just the story is getting more and more complex as we go so some of them are helping some of them are working against david is on the other side of the jordan river and yeah just all kinds of crazy things going on here So this, I mean, it's just telling me that it's kind of a good way of showing how our individual sins spread out and affect other people around us. And those fingers can go quite a ways. It's like like the the butterfly effect, if you're familiar with the butterfly effect. The idea Mm -hmm. that uh, a butterfly can flap its wings here and through the course of, of a chain of events, eventually you can end up with a hurricane on the other side of the planet because of of all the little ripples that it's caused. And this is kind of what's happening here with David. It's like his sins with Bathsheba and uh, of, uh, uh, with just having issues with women in general has just compounded now into this civil war within Israel. And now we've got families fighting against each other or, or act, at least working against each other in this whole, in this whole conflict. Well, David divides his forces up, and at this point now, like we talked about, he's got thousands of men. He divides them between Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, and he prepares to go out into battle himself. But the people convince him to stay behind because he's too important. Uh, yeah, he's too important. Similar to these days, how you know we would never have our president go into war, even though he's the commander of everything. We would never put a gun in our president's hand and have him go out onto the front because he's just considered to be way too important. And, and losing losing a president is, is detrimental to a lot, of, a lot of things. So we have them stay behind. But David commands specifically that Absalom should not be harmed, or at least the way he put it, he says he's to be dealt with lightly. And, and we're told that all the people hear this, and this becomes important coming, coming down the pike here. And they have a battle in the woods of Ephraim. David's men kill, it says, 20,000 men of Israel. These would be Absalom's followers at this point. And we're starting to see a difference here in the story, too. Of We have a specific uh, division between Judah and Israel. And I think we've noticed some, uh, some talk of that in the past. But that wasn't so much in a division point. It was more of just pointing out of... Judah kind of doing something different from everybody else. But in this case, it's almost its almost like this is a beginning of that division. I think we can take a look at it from when when Saul died, that David went to reign over Judah for, what was it, seven years? Mm-hmm. Six and a half, seven years, something like that, before he was like recognized as the king of the entire Israel. And I think that's where that actual kind of divide might have started, and then it got brought back together. And I think we're seeing that divide again. <laughs> Yeah, and we're told that in that 20,000 men being killed, we're told the woods devoured more people that day than the sword. So yeah, that's crazy. This is, uh, you know, God said that David was going to be king. He said that it was going to be his seed that would, would rule. And I don't, you know, I'd be curious to know what it means that this that the woods devoured them. I mean, how treacherous of a forest is this? Um, um that you... I
2: don't know if it's so much that it's treacherous as everybody's careening through it at battle speeds.
0: Yeah, yeah. I
2: mean, look what happened to Absalom himself.
0: Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely, Absalom. He's riding on a mule. Karen, you had you had some. Uh, <laughs> you oh. thought people riding on mules was funny.
2: <laughs> well, royalty, like royalty, riding on mules is funny to me. Because I don't see mules as regal creatures in the slightest. I like, I want a prancing stallion if I'm going to have like a human royalty on it. I just, I want the image to be complete. And then no, it turns out they ride mules and I kind of can't get over it.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny. That's
2: all.
0: Yeah. So Absalom, though, he's riding through the forest. And we've been told in the past that this guy grows hair like nobody else. And he would cut it once a year because it would just get so heavy. And in this case, it's really played against him because as he's riding this mule and mules are big, they're big animals. I mean, they're not like Clydesdale big, but they're bigger than, you know, an average like an Arabian because they're just big, strong animals. And uh, he gets his hair caught in a tree and he's left hanging there by his hair. That can't feel good. You know. I mean, you think about when you get one single strand of hair caught in something and it yanks it out and it brings a tear to your eye. Well, now he's he's hanging in a tree by his hair. And talk about an undignified position to be in. And and this report that him he's been found, he's he's found hanging in a tree. And somebody comes and tells goes and tells Joab, hey, we found Absalom in a tree. And Joab really gets upset with this guy. It's like, why didn't you kill him? You could you had a you had an opportunity and and mm, this guy yeah. reminds Joab, this is David's son and they were commanded specifically not to harm Absalom. But uh, Joab is having none of that. He take he take runs off. He's got three spears with him and he puts all three spears right into Absalom. And he's got some armor bearers with him and they start hacking away at Absalom and you know, the whole time he's just hanging in this tree. I mean, talk about a gruesome scene of of contempt and
1: and violence against uh against this guy, against Absalom. Yeah. yeah, and that's I think I think the the author here of Second Samuel makes a number of points that to us are like, oh yeah, that's a thing, but to the readers of the time would have been profound. That that Absalom here is Like you said, he's in this ignominious position of just hanging in the air. He can't do anything for himself at all. And he's, he's killed, right? He can't even fight back. So he's killed at this point. I'm sure they cut off his hair to get him down. Probably. And he is thrown in a hole and covered with rocks. And in his life... I don't remember exactly where he said it. Oh, it's it's right there in uh, verse 18 and so on, is that um Absalom had made himself a pillar in the King's Valley. He made a monument. Apparently he had no heir, and so he's like, well, I'll just make myself a, a monument to myself. And he does this thing while he's alive to honor himself, but in his death nobody makes a monument to him. It's just it's a pile of th- it's a pile of rocks. Somewhere in the woods, and that to the readers would have said, "What, what an incredible shame came at his end." And I think we cannot. I mean, there's the word shame here in um, in 19, where Joab starts to he uh, rebukes David, and he says, "Don't bring shame on people." Like it's a really big deal. Like it's ranked above death, literally, by Joab, and. That's how Absalom's wonderful, glorious beginning ends. You know, it goes to where, where God talks to, to Samuel. And he, Samuel looks at, um, at David's brothers and, God's, and and Samuel thinks, Ooh, man, that guy's good-looking. And God says, No, 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 I do not look on the outside. I look on the inside of what's, uh, what's on a person. And Israel had swooned for a good-looking guy, Absalom. We still do it today. We do it in politics. We do it in, um, we do it in Hollywood. We do it in all kinds of things. These entertainers have not all, I'm, I'm not saying all, but many times we elevate these people who have no moral fiber or character or wisdom at all to superstar status because they're looking, because they look good. Because they look good. Mm-hmm. And here's Absalom. He's this handsome, dashing guy, I'm sure all the women were just, oh, Absalom, so wonderful. And all the guys are like, "Wow, there's a there's a man's man. He's he's getting it done." But his character was more worthless than ashes. And this is where it ends. And I don't think it's by accident that it was left for people to reflect on. This is where it goes, folks. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I look at that, and when you say moral fiber, I kind of look at. There was that that moral dilemma, too. And if you see it, there's people that want to follow what is right or what they've been told. And I think you see this part in the military part. If we jump back to where when Joab questions his troops, why didn't you pin him to the ground right then? Why don't you strike him into the ground? I would have given you, what was it, 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. And they respond back and go, you know what? I wouldn't have taken a 1,000 shekels. Because David told us not to. But then I think you see that other part in there that you always have somebody in the background. And to me, it's almost, you know, it's that the good the good angel on one side, the devil on the other, always in conflict, giving you these kind of back and forth things to do. And you have to make the right decision. I think the, the, the lower troops made the right decision. But then you have Joab that is just basically out for himself and sees this as, you know what? I'll take care of it at this point because David won't I think is exactly how it ends up at that point that Absalom dies. And like you said, unceremoniously. So now Absalom is dead and really, I mean, it's solved a problem, uh, at least as far as militarily speaking and maybe sort of politically speaking solved a problem. And Ahimeas. Have we talked about Nehemiah at all? I don't know if this is just a name that came up or if we've heard of him before, but uh, he wants to be the one to tell David the news. I, you know, if you've heard anything of David's history, I would not be the one. I would not want to be the one to tell David that one of his kids is dead. But for some reason, Nehemiah really wants to be the one. He says he wants to tell him that the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. But instead, Joab sends another guy, just called—he's just named as the Cushite—sends him instead. But Ahimeas really wants to go, and he's like, "Let me go anyway." And finally, Joab says, "Okay, fine, you can go." And Ahimeas starts running, and he outruns the Cushite, and gets gets to David first. But then he, when he gets there, he only tells David that God has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord. He doesn't say anything about Absalom, even when he's asked directly, "How did that? How did that go?" Uh, verse twenty nine. I have a, a note on that.
1: Ahimeaz yeah. is the son of Zadok, and he was one of the two people who ran to warn David to run and get across the Jordan River. So he's been a runner before in this. He kind of started this thing uh, saying, hey, David, you got to run. And then he brings this news, part two, that, hey, this thing's is over.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in chapter 18, verse 29, the, uh, David specifically asks, is the young man, Absalom, safe? But Ahimeas won't tell him anything about about uh, about Absalom. But then the Cushite comes, and he tells David that Absalom is dead. And David goes into some really deep mourning for his son. David's got a—this is another interesting part of David's character. He is very loyal to family, even, even when they are acting against him. His friends and his family— but specifically here, I, I it seems to me that most people would like just disown a son who acted this way. I mean, I've seen people disown children for far less than this. And David is just not uh, he's just not that type. He still loves his son. He still I think he would still love to have a, a good relationship with him, even after all of this. And now he can't because Absalom is dead. And so he goes into mourning. And Joab gets told about David's mourning. And all of the victory then gets turned to mourning. This is the way it's put in uh, chapter 19. So, you know, what normally would be considered uh, this huge victory, a, a moment of triumph in the country, turns into mourning. People are recognizing how David is reacting to the death of his son. And I they also this has something to do. Oh. Well, I was just gonna say it says that the people act as if they're ashamed, like they take shame for what has happened. but um, go ahead, Tracy, and then Karen. You know, I, I think this has a little bit to do with like military bearing almost that that Joab is going off that premise and saying, "Hey, listen, we just had a big victory. we We crushed those that are against you, and yet you're mourning for those and not really recognizing the sacrifice that we've made as well. And you're mourning for them and taking away from this victory. So I almost looked at it as like military bearing part as, you know, Joab kind of calling David out on it. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And I, and I, I like what Joab says in verse seven to him. He says, now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left to you by nightfall. This will Mm -hmm. be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth until now. Like these people went to battle for you and they took down someone who was trying to take you down. Someone who had strategically and intentionally and over a period of years undermined you as king. And you're grieving the wrong. You're grieving the traitor, Mm -hmm. you know. I, I very much I, I thought the same thing as Tracy when I was reading through this. I was like, this sounds like military pride and it sound, and and yet they were reduced to shame just because of their king's personal reaction to it.
1: Yeah. And I, I have to wonder about this. This is a very confusing set of reading and it gets weirder. Yeah. Um is that David seems to have I guess it I guess this is one of those things where I Where I think, well, just because it was recorded and just because somebody in the Bible did it doesn't mean it's the right thing. Mm -hmm. I think to have sorrow for his son is noble and it's worthy instead of just throwing him out there to hate and contempt. Is to mourn him and say, man, that's so sad that that happened, but I'm glad that it's over. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't just say, "Ah, I'm I'm sad that this happened. I'm sad that he chose that. I'm sad that it had to come to this. He's just basically boo-hoo, boo-hoo, I wish, basically, what Joab accused him of, I wish everybody else were dead, my son were alive. It's like, that same weird passivity is what allowed Absalom to kill his other son, who was, was this Amnon, because mm-hmm. he wouldn't wow. punish Amnon, because it's like, oh, he's my son, ah, what can you do? And he throws up his hands, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why Joab killed Absalom is like, oh, what's he going to do? He's going to like, if I bring back Absalom in handcuff, he's going to say, oh, Absalom, I'm just going to go ahead and make you king after all. You know, I mean, I I don't have it in me to to discipline you. I don't know. It's it's a lot of guessing on my part. But David seems he seems kind of a little bit like he's lost his grip with both hands on the steering wheel, because as he goes forward. I mean, there's there's one thing about saying good, "good good job, guys." We appreciate the work that you did. Um, in verse 13, he he's, he starts to he comes back to Jerusalem, and he takes Amasa, the commander of the rebelling army, and puts them in charge of the military instead of Joab. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Which, to me, I'm like, what? I, I I can't make sense of that at all.
0: Yeah, we're not really even given a reason.
1: He just does it. It's kind of almost like a, oh, you know, you guys rebelled. Well, let's just compromise. I'll still be king, but your rebellious leader can now be the commander of the army.
2: He's related to Amasa, isn't he, in some way?
1: Yeah, same way Joab. It's, It's one of his... It's it's one of David's brother's sons, I believe. Yeah, I thought or, it was like a
2: nephew or something.
1: Or it's Zeruah's nephew, I, which is, which is Joab's mom. It's one of those okay. two, but basically, he's a nephew of David, one way or another. Yeah,
2: I, I I thought of this as first of all, I think at this point he had very mixed feelings about Joab. Like Joab told him exactly what he needed to hear. Mm-hmm. But it was probably not a comfortable conversation. And Joab was, I mean, Joab knows a lot about David's shenanigans over the years. You mm-hmm. know, it was Joab that he sent the message to that said, put Uriah on the front lines and withdraw from him. You know what I mean? And it's, and we've seen Joab speak firmly to David before, like you come and lead the army and finish taking this city, or I'm going to do it and I'm going to put my name on it, Right. So Joab is probably one of the few people around David who knows him well enough to not be intimidated by his power and his position. And he calls it like it is. And in this case, he was, first of all, he was in charge of the troops when Absalom died. And who knows if word of Absalom's actual cause of death ever got back to him. I'm assuming that at some point he found out the details and knew that Joab was involved in it. Then Joab scolds him for... Mistreating the army with his lack of respect for what they did for him. And so I would say that between David's apparently unchecked grief, self absorbed grief, and Joab's reprimands, I would say he doesn't feel too nicely. I would say that Joab is a very uncomfortable person for him to be around. And also, if he does actually, if he is in such an emotional state that he has this weird, misguided clinging to his son who was trying to usurp him. Then, using Absalom's leader of his troops is some kind of some kind of a weird grief-stricken way to sort of cling on to Absalom if that makes sense
0: you know, and looking at this, i I think too, this is where we kind of see one of those once again divides where David looks at Joab in a different light that his military bearing, his prowess, his ability to motivate troops, his willingness, his Ability to get troops, just like he tells David, you know what, if you don't turn this thing around, by the end of the night, you won't have anybody. Mm -hmm. That's almost like a threat, almost, to say that, you know, listen, this can go south on you quickly. And I can see that it happens. Yeah. Where in the end, if you look at the foreshadowing and he's telling Solomon, hey, listen, you know what, you better watch out for Joab. Yep. Because you know what, You're, you're the new kid on the block and this guy can motivate people. He's a great field general. He's, once again, he's a great soldier. And you know what? If he goes unchecked, you
1: might not have a kingdom. Yep, I agree. I think if there's anybody who could have taken over the kingdom successfully, it would have been Joab. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I'm having a hard time knowing how I'm supposed to relate to Joab. Because it seems like he gives, he, he spends a lot, he does a lot of, he gives David some good advice, but at the same time, he kind of works against David sometimes. Yet, it seems to work in David's favor. But I'm trying to decide if this is ultimately in Joab's favor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, oh, it's I uh, think so. yeah. He's uh, he's just a, he's an interesting guy, and I'm having a hard time knowing how to relate to him. But um,
1: so yeah, we, it's anyway. even more interesting. So yeah. David back to Jerusalem. Shimei shows up again and basically says, oh, all the stuff I said before, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He, uh,
0: so, yeah, so weird, just such a flip all of a sudden. And did he just realize that, oh, I'm, uh. I'm not in a good place now. And I better, I better go uh, suck up to the king to try to regain a little honor here or a little, uh, make sure that I don't get taken out. I don't know. But um, yeah, he just very quickly flips and comes back and, and now he's totally on David's side. Just, yeah, just an interesting thing. and And David accepts this. That's, that's really interesting too. He just, but you know what? He didn't. David didn't really show contempt for him at the at the beginning of this. He he backed off and and um, kind of was just letting uh, Shimei make his own bed on that. And now he's he's able to just show some mercy towards Shimei. I guess you know maybe just showing a little wisdom here and that Shimei's actions before were maybe kind of immature, misguided, and not even really to be taken seriously at the moment. But Abishai thinks differently.
1: Yeah.
0: Abishai thinks Shimei should be put to death.
1: Yeah. his brother.
0: Mm-hmm. And he actually even considers Abishai's suggestion to be adversarial. But he makes an an oath to Shimei that he won't die. So good for Shimei.
1: Well, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> about this is that he Shimei has shown himself to be an adversary of the king. Yeah. And the brother of the commander of the army says, let me kill him now. And David's like, "Nah, we're not going to kill him today. Mm-hmm. And he lives in that honor of shame society. Man, that's going to be really hard to live down now that David's king. And Shimei has to live with this knowledge that he basically acted all tough and then groveled. That's going to be hard to explain that away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, David and Mephibosheth meet back up. And we've already talked about this a little bit, where Mephibosheth shows up, and he has not been taking care of himself. It specifically says that he hasn't taken care of his feet, and this really makes me wonder what was going on between him and Zeba when Zeba decided to leave. Because we we it's it's hard for us to know had Mephibosheth actually turned on David. Or was it Zeba just looking out for himself and 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 uh, abandoning Mephibosheth in the moment? Because it seems like Mephibosheth just hasn't been cared for. I don't know how much he's able to care for himself, but he, when he shows up, he doesn't look good. You
2: know. um, I there's you know of the of the three things that it lists to show his how unkempt he is. I would just like to point out that anyone can trim their own mustache, so. <laughs>
0: Well, you would think. You would think. So I don't know what's happened here exactly. He just has, uh, he's a wreck. I mean, that's, there's. I was wondering too, if, if maybe he had got wind of what was said about him and then had been watching what's going on and see that David ultimately does win. And even though he might not have said it, he was like, you know what? This is not going to go well for me. Just like we had said before, he brought me out of Lodabar. he, brought me to his house, he cleaned me up, he provided food and shelter for me, restored all the land, I eat at his table, and yet this is being said about me? And really, what stature do I have? I'm, I'm crippled, I'm relying on David, and it looks like I turned on him, and maybe he gets into some state of, of depression. Mm-hmm. That, you know what, this is not going to go well for me, and this is how, it, you know, how he presents himself, that, you know what, I'm broken.
2: Where where Mephibosheth says well, no, where it says about him that he had not taken care of himself from the day the king left mm-hmm. until the day he returned safely. Yes, probably some of that was due to the rumors, but I'm I'm guessing, since this is pre-internet, that he didn't know the rumors immediately. I'm guessing he didn't, and that he was genuinely afraid of losing his protector having a different person come into power who did not have loyalty to his father, Jonathan, who would probably come and off him as someone with a legitimate claim to the throne. I don't know, but I guess that's just a guess. It doesn't really matter.
0: Yeah, it's it's some interesting political intrigue. And I, you know, when, I'm, when we were talking about David's reaction to this, to split the land up in between Ziba and Mephibosheth, yeah. It reminds me of Solomon's reaction when the two women come and come to him, and one of them, you know, they're they're talking about uh, who who own who has not Owens, who, whose baby died. And we'll get to that when you know. I don't think it's too far out here, but where you know Solomon is like, well, let's cut the baby in half, and everybody takes a half. It, th- I see this as almost like the mirror of that, where where that where Solomon got the reaction of the woman who who truly was the uh, the mother. And here, you almost see just some complacency. It's it, it almost seems like maybe there was some feud about who was supposed to benefit from the land. And I don't know, there's just an underlying thing happening here where they're both trying to suck up to David to get what's theirs, if you will. And David's like, you know what? Just split it, just split it. But but then Mephibosheth's reaction is kind of interesting too, though, because he's like, "Now nah, Z- Ziba can keep it all. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm in the king's house. He can have it all. I'm I'm fine." So maybe Mephibosheth here has just finally accepted that he's got it really good living with David, and and he was completely misguided in hoping to somehow. I don't. Know, it seemed like maybe he was getting, hoping to get the kingdom for himself, or at least that was the narrative that Zeba was giving us. I wasn't don't know.
2: Ziba, wasn't Zeba his steward. Yeah. So whatever it was, either I'm I'm guessing it was a sizable estate. Um, I yeah, I, it was, I remember it was that everything some...
0: that Saul owned. So mm-hmm. yeah, sizable is probably on the yeah, light side.
2: Everything Saul owned. Well, okay, I, I would have to look back and see what exactly that means. But if you split the estate, Mephibosheth has to get himself set up with a new steward and new servants, and he may or may not be very capable of that. He probably is not able to run any size of an estate by himself. He, There's probably some bad blood between him and Ziba now. And I don't know, that just, that whole thing seems very awkward. If I was Mephibosheth, I would not want to return to any situation where I was sharing property with Ziba. I mean, look what he's shown himself capable of.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good point that Karen has too is, is like, you know what? At this point, seeing what being away from David on, on, you know, this estate that Saul had or that's in with Saul's families that, have now has now I think it's it's probably in his best interest now that he just looks at it and says you know what I can't do it just like Karen's saying I'd rather just stay in the palace with David eat at his table every night I'm closer to him it this kind of thing can never be said about me again and I won't have to deal with it it's yeah it's just an interesting little uh, political thing happening here it's just uh,
2: more but on intrigue. the flip
0: on the flip side intrigue. it it is kind of it makes you think that maybe if ziba was lying about it he ultimately profited a lot yeah i know
2: that annoys yeah. me Being
0: ill of of another person and, and lying basically mm-hmm. you know but then you have it on the other side that if msiba did do this then he's pretty lucky that he didn't lose his life and he's still with with david getting taken care of Yeah. so it's just that spin on it that you know it, it just like we said when before we started at the very beginning this had a lot of twists and turns that it was just like made you sit back and just kind of go hmm i don't know what's going on this is it's not all, all not adding up
2: mm-hmm. yeah i i i disliked all of these the content of these chapters that we read i dislike backstabbing and gossip and sneaking around to have conversations here it, it It exhausted me in high school and it exhausts me now. I just don't like it. So I felt kind of icky after reading through these chapters.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yep, It is intriguing. and It's not over. No, No. it's not over. Uh, We get a short little blur about uh, Barzillai, who had cared for David while he was in Mahanaim. And David wants to bring him back to Jerusalem to repay his kindness. But. Garzalai's like, thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather stay home. I'm old and I wouldn't really enjoy it anyway. So he sends a servant to live with David instead. But now we get we get an interesting quarrel happening here. David is getting escorted by Judah, heading back to Jerusalem. And the rest of Israel, some of the other elders, I suppose, some, for some reason they take offense to this, that, that he's being escorted back by Judah specifically, and mm-hmm. they ask, why has Judah stolen you away? And Judah, the people of Judah, they kind of respond with, well, because he's our family. As David is. He's in the line of Judah. And then Israel, they come back, the rest of Israel. We have 10 shares in the king. We have more right than you. <laughs> we were the first to advise bringing him back. So it's this funny little, he's mine. You know, he's mine. No, he's mine. What in the world is happening here? And that whole thing—it sounds like it just basically ends with it Judah just shouting down Israel. Just that's just a weird, what a weird turn of events where it's like, you know, he's ours. No, he's ours. Well, what? <laughs> um, uh, it's just one of those political situations where you're sitting on the sidelines, going, "Why are we even fighting about this? Well, Why I think is it's this a thing?
2: I think that it's a thing because in this day and age who escorted the king was much more visible than now. Yeah. So hmm. like, I, I think it was, I think it was um, in the wake of this, there was how long did, how long did Absalom four years he spent breeding loyalty to him outside the gate, you mm-hmm. know, like this has been a long siege that finally ended in the, in David being firmly back on the throne and i would just guess that it was very visible which tribe was escorting david back to his capital mm-hmm. so why david would allow judah to do it as opposed to having a contingent from all of the tribes who offered to make a public you know if this is so visible and such a and the tribes are they feel so strongly about being involved why wouldn't david capitalize on that and breed unity by Having having people from all of the tribes, you know, I didn't really understand that either.
0: Yeah, but. I guess it could have been there could have been a little more effort on David's part to, to yeah, to show that solidarity by doing that. Yeah. It just it, it seemed to me like there just wasn't a whole lot of thought put into it at all. It was just like, well, sure, Jude is going to take me back because that's where we're going, you know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't know. It just uh it's just as an odd little little Quarrel going on there in the land,
2: and then
0: and then more intrigue. We get this guy named Sheba, which is funny. I had to I had to shift my gears of thinking that in this case Sheba is a man's name because I always think well, even I guess for some it's reason a always in my yeah the country, but for some reason in my head I think of that as a female name. But maybe it's because of the term the Queen of Sheba, you know. But it's not like Sheba is the queen anyway. That's a whole different completely different Sheba in this case is a Benjamite and uh, I'm guessing he must have as a Benjamite maybe still felt some some uh, tie to Saul because Saul had been a Benjamite and he calls Israel away so this is this division between Judah and Israel now so the rest of Israel is following Sheba but the rest of Judah definitely stays loyal to David and when he returns to Jerusalem, he takes those concubines that that had now been—I'm going to say—they were violated by by Absalom, and he puts them away into seclusion. Still supports them; he doesn't abandon them. But it does talk about them how they they how does how did it put it? They have to live as widows for the rest of their life, which isn't exactly
2: kept doesn't kept seem in to confinement.
0: Be, yeah, uh, I mean you know we talked about how concubines really were a kind of wife so it's not like they were free to go be with anybody else and i suppose david could have taken the opportunity to just flat out divorce them since they had been with um since they had been with absalom now not you know not their fault but it had happened and but instead i mean he's going to care for them but they are not they're not really treated as wives anymore. I kind of feel bad, I mean not kinda I feel bad 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 for them, but it was uh it was a it was a different time and uh yeah,
2: they had to live in seclusion for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. oh my goodness
1: Ugh. yeah yeah, yeah but I wonder seriously how much that was different than the their regular life because that probably wasn't like they got to just go out and circulate around the town anyways. Mm -hmm. I don't don't know. Um, But at this point, it sounds like David did the most honorable thing, given the customs of his time that he could have done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Which we can probably agree is not up to 21st century standards uh, for gender equality. But we have a lot of things where people just kind of do their own thing. Now we've got Amasa, the king. I mean, apparently David didn't just say this on a whim. He truly did make Amasa the um, director of the military, mm-hmm. and um, Amasa is is uh, called out to to uh, begin a campaign. And short story, Joab just uh, kills him. Just takes mm-hmm. him. Stabs him and grabs his beard like, hey, how's it going? Like like today would give a a friend or a high five, you know, a hug or a high five to somebody that's a friend of ours. He's going to go do this. Um, And the two of them are related in some way. And uh, Joab just kills him. And it's a pretty gross thing. He just basically cuts open his stomach and lets him bleed to death. Yeah, that's
0: a that's a rated R scene in the middle of the road, man.
1: Yep. Just and... lets him
0: bleed out. And it says he's wallowing in his own blood while everybody's standing around looking at him. and Yuck.
1: Yeah. And and so Joab is truly a, a hardcore dude. I, the whole thing is just rather puzzling. Like, why? I can't. Why would David well, do this?
0: No clue. This seems like another one of those situations, though, where De- Joab, I think it's a self-serving thing, but he is in the process of this. Serving David in a way because Amasa was taken too long to gather the troops. He was given three days to do it, and it's told that he didn't get it done in time. And then Joab goes out. its kind of like Joab's like, well, if he can't do it, I'm going to go do it. And then when he meets him in the road, he guts him, you know. And
1: um, it's like I think of those... it was an
0: old old guard, new guard kind of thing—the mm-hmm. the young pup on the block and the old seasoned veteran. Where Joab was like, okay, you're not getting the job done. Once again, takes matters into his own hand, and as gruesome as they may seem, it's that's his life. That has been him and David's life since the beginning, is mm-hmm. cutting down people, like we've said over and over. And once again, he plays into that inexperience of a younger general now, and he catches him off guard. Because you know he maybe didn't have the physical prowess anymore. Because Joab's probably old at this point, but he had all the seasoned veteran and military intelligence behind him, and that kind of conniving, methodical, sorely kind of nature to him that he caught him off guard and mm-hmm. he he gutted him right there. And now he is back to being once again the only, the big dog on the block besides David. Yeah, it's you know it's fascinating like. Uh, Eric had said that if anybody could have taken over the country, it probably would have been Joab. Seems like he just wasn't really interested in having that level. He was, he liked where he was and he,
2: yeah,
0: he liked that. And he wanted to stay, he liked, wanted to be there and liked being under David because it worked out well for him because David generally was on the winning side of things. Uh, And he could have, he had, he had the power and the stature and, you know, not the visible responsibility. Mm-hmm. He got all the perks, really. Yeah. Was happy yeah. where he was. Kind of almost like, in a way, and this might be just maybe exaggerating a little bit, but almost like the the puppet controlling the things behind the scenes, mm-hmm. which a lot, if you look in history, a lot of military generals, there might be
1: a king there, but the military general was calling the shots. Right. Right. Yeah, so, so Joab goes and gets it done. This guy, uh, Sheba says, I'm going to lead a big rebellion and I'm off. And basically, so Joab and his army chases him down to a city. This, the They throw siege works against the city. Then this, to me, a little bit of an odd interchange. It's kind of like <laughs> this wise woman who comes up and she's like, hey, what's going on? Like, did you not know what's happening here? Like, you're, seriously, you didn't know? I think some of this is, is a bit of like, Formality and a play of it's 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 the back and forth, yeah. It, it's it's formality play, and she says, "Whoa, what's happening here? Let me talk to the person who's in charge." And Joab says, "Well, here's what's going on." She's like, "I'll be right. Please hold." <laughs> and she, <laughs> and uh, for those who haven't read the story, basically, what happens is that he uh, Sheba holds up in this city, and uh, the is they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, it, we're, they're going to tear down our city to get this guy. Mm. And they probably have heard of Joab and they know that it's going to go that way. And so she's like, you know what? Actually, let's just save our city, save our bacon. And says, so Joab, she calls for an audience with Joab, says, hey, you really just want this one guy, right? And Joab's like, yeah, it's all I really want. She's like, tell you what, just hang on a sec. We'll be right back with you.
2: <laughs> so and- awful. I can't help but laugh, but it's so awful.
1: It's 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 dark humor. <laughs> it's but you know the thing is is that Sheba's not going to last. She knows this. Yeah, yeah. She convinces the people of the town of this, and apparently the people of the town are more numerous, and Sheba's own followers. I would have to say are complicit in this. They realize they're all going to die, and everybody's like, you know what? Let's just give up Sheba. So they kill Sheba toss his head over the wall to joab and joab's like all right well we're all done here and that's the end of that rebellion
0: yep that's it man It was just a short-lived thing it's like yeah it, it's funny because it's like she this guy sheba pops up we've never heard of him before and uh starts his little rebellion and pff, he's done gone
2: so these these last few chapters we've been reading about david i have trouble with david i've I've always had trouble liking David. Like when he's young, I I see I admire what I read about him and I admire how he handles things and he's just kind of matter-of-fact and we're just going to get stuff done and oh nope, you don't get to insult the Lord down with you, right? Yeah, and
0: Yeah, David and Goliath David is awesome.
2: Yeah, and and I just I struggle with the idea that he was a man after God's own heart because I I want to look at his whole life and see that. And I don't. And I dislike the current David so much. Like, I I genuinely dislike him. I don't respect what I read. I don't want anything to do with him. He just comes across as as passive and weak and overly emotional. And it makes me crazy. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he's he's the line of David and, you know, all of this stuff. And he's he's a big deal. And I don't like him.
0: You know, I can I can see Karen's point, um, but I I look at it like this, though, that he was on fire in the be- beginning, just like David Goliath, awesome, running the countryside, has the ability to kill Saul, didn't want to do it, you know, in a nutshell. And then at the, you know, towards the end of life, he's kind of like the, the old lion. You know, he, he it doesn't take, it, it takes a lot to get him stirred. Other than that, he's just pretty passive about everything to his detriment sometimes. But I I wonder if it's also that kind of the cycle of life that and this might be hard. It's hard for me to say, but maybe you don't stay on fire that for the duration of life because it changes for you. And I just see him as getting old and withered and not really wanting to portray or be in those battles anymore. I just see him as as an aging man.
2: Aging, sure. But when I say weak and passive, I also mean like the way that he raised his or didn't raise his sons, which to me goes back further. And the way he, when he seemed to settle into power, you know, and there's the old adage, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Okay, human nature. Yeah, there's probably some truth to that. But I just, I see this as such a dilution of his character. And I know I get what you're saying, Tracy. And no, I don't think you can stay on fire like that. I think that would just, that's, that's exhausting. And so, yes, as he came into his position that God had ordained for him, we know that he was going to be the next king. So he, this is where God put him. Yes, we know he's going to settle down. It just seems like he got weak and passive. Eh.
0: But then too, I think we look at the plight of a king. Though, when you look out for your country, sometimes you forget about your family. You know, and I think it's also being like a, a shepherd or even a minister or a pastor or something like that. Sometimes you're more worried about the flock that you forget about your own children. You know, and and I wonder if that's. That's what happened to him. Is that he was overlooking this entire country, and he forgot about his own backyard.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm with Karen on this, and and um, and it's very difficult to like or admire David now. And I think that we have those who are Christians and who who heard, heard the the uh, the the part of the verse. David was a man after God's own heart, which is which is biblical. We want to apply that to his whole life. And scoffers want to apply that specifically to the latter part of his life. And I don't think it is a universal fit. I believe that when that was said, David was, in fact, pursuing God's will and way. Let's think about this. Think about all the times when that was said, when it was said, and David inquired of the Lord, and David inquired of the Lord. And it says at that point, David um, was a man after God's own heart, right? But we don't see David inquiring of the Lord. We don't see him inquiring for Bathsheba. We don't see him inquiring when it comes to the rebellion of his son. We don't see him inquire he just David's just kind of doing David's thing, which is very passive, which is very withdrawn, which I personally Karen could probably comment more on this with her training in psychology than I could, but it appears to be the outgrowth of his own guilt and shame from stemming from his poor choices and his should i should say uh lack of taking it on saying you know what i did this this was wrong and everybody don't do what i did just don't and he seems to basically just kind of be it's it's like you know that old joke it's like you know the rv crashes beside the road and the uh the, you know it's just a pile of sticks and the RV the uh, police officer comes up and asks the old retired driver he's like well what what happened and he goes well it said yeah, it's cruise control I put it on cruise control went to the back to make a sandwich <laughs> It's kind of like that's what David did with his kingdom. He just put the thing on cruise control went to the back to make a sandwich and it's like that's not how life goes and I think this is a really important thing for us. Is this idea that we want to have, like, look, once I was victorious with this one thing, or I had a good week, or I had a good project, or I did this thing well, then that projects onto everything forever. Like, I get to coast on that one victory forever. And that is not how life works. We see a lot of other kings that come up in Israel. we got, we got uh, Saul coming up. Not Saul, I'm sorry. Um, Solomon. Uh, David's son, and then the kings kind of come and go in rapid succession. And we see an interesting thing. Some start out really well and turn really bad. And there's a couple who start out really bad and actually turn coarse. And I think that for our own lives, that's a very important lesson, is that we don't have to end up, or another way to say it, we don't get to end up the way we started. Each of us in our Christian walk get to change our course. We have um, the the New Testament, Saul turning into the Apostle Paul. He changed. He literally changed where he was going. And I think that that's a lesson for us here in this, that we can change for better or for worse.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because it's definitely a spot where it's not like David did anything specifically bad in his later years he just kind of stopped doing anything and and it just didn't work out great well that is going to about wrap it up for the discussion this week there is a little bit left in the chapter but it's just kind of listing off some officers under under david Uh, you can read those if you're interested in the history part of it it amounts to like three verses i think is all but um for our purposes this will be where we leave off for this week Next week we will read 2 Samuel 21 through 24 which I think finishes the chapter and 1 Chronicles 21 and 22 which which uh, will be a little added insight into that. While you are waiting for us you can reach us at attvpodcast at theadventure.org with any questions or comments. You can reach us on Facebook. You can make sure to Subscribe to the podcast so that we reach you in your feet each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. See you later.